John 15, verses 1 to 17. We'll start there this morning, and then we'll look at a couple other scriptures. If you've seen any of the Star Wars movies, then you know that the heroes of the saga are the Jedi. And the Jedi are the brave knights of the Star Wars galaxy. They're, they're strong, they're mighty, they're protectors of justice, they're superior fighters to almost anybody else. And the secret to the Jedi's power is the Force, right? It's this mysterious power and, and influence which is beyond themselves, but that the Jedi tap into. But, but just because the Jedi gain great power and abilities from a force beyond themselves doesn't mean that becoming or being a Jedi is effortless. Quite to the contrary, it requires extensive training and, and, and demanding training. If you've seen the second movie, The Empire Strikes Back, then you remember Luke Skywalker's grueling training under uh, Jedi Master Yoda on the swampy planet of Dagobah. He, he sweat, he hurt, he dug deep day after day, week after week, no pain, no gain. You know, a similar dynamic exists in the Christian life. We, we saw a few weeks ago in John 15, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. We just read it again this morning. We, we can't bear any of the fruit that God wants us to produce by ourselves. We need not the force, but Jesus. Big difference. We need to remain in the vine, Jesus, so that his life can course through us. But that doesn't mean that there's no work to do or no effort that's required. Quite to the contrary, as we're going to see today, remaining in Jesus and bearing fruit requires a lot of effort. It can be demanding and stretching, no pain, no gain. Think of Paul's words in Philippians. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus Christ. So let's review. Two, week, two weeks ago we saw that on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, he was preparing his broken-hearted, confused, and bewildered disciples to carry on his mission after his departure. Jesus was about to die in the place of his people and many others as well. And his people through all of history had been God's vine, but had failed time and again to produce the fruit that God was looking for. And now Jesus, as, as the true vine, had come to produce the fruit that his people had failed to produce. And he produced that fruit and, and was producing it. And, and then as he was preparing to depart, Jesus was preparing his disciples to go on producing that fruit after him. I am the vine, he told them and us, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. Do you want to produce fruit? Then remain in Jesus, the vine. So how do we remain? Well, we began looking at a few ways two weeks ago. We saw that remaining has something to do with praying. It has something to do with letting God's word remain in us. It has something to do with remaining in Jesus' love. We also saw that Jesus told us in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we saw that far from Jesus being hard on us, Jesus himself had said back in John 5:30 that he himself could do nothing apart from the Father. Further in, in John 15, 
10, Jesus had made a connection between our ability to produce fruit apart from him, or sorry, our inability to produce fruit apart from him, and Jesus' inability to produce fruit apart from his Father. Jesus, had, Jesus said there in John 15, 10, Remain in my love just as I remain in the Father's love. Jesus himself bore fruit not on his own, but by remaining in his Father. And if we're going to bear fruit, we likewise must remain in Jesus. So here's the point. If we can learn how Jesus remained in the Father, then that will be helpful to us so that we can learn how to remain in Jesus. Make sense? So how did Jesus remain? Well, I mentioned two weeks ago, there's two ways that Jesus remained. First, he remained continually, moment by moment, listening to what the Father was saying to him, watching what the Father was doing, trusting and delighting in the Father's love for him. And then second, and this is the one I want to focus on today and for the next two Sundays as well, Jesus also set apart special times to remain. Often, Jesus was busy, wasn't he? You read the Gospels, there was always the press of the crowds about him. He was busy with his mission, with, with the ministry that God had given him to do. But regularly, Jesus set aside time to pull away in order to remain. I've been calling this life rhythm. And the pendulum and the semicircle shape that it traces are, are helpful symbols to remember this, to remember that, that life is, is best lived and Jesus gave us this example as a rhythm of, of times of work and times of rest, of times of activity and of times of refreshment, of times of fruitful ministry, fruitfulness in, in serving and loving and reaching out to others, and times of remaining. A rhythm. And this is the rhythm that I'd like to explore further with you over the next couple weeks. Let's start with Jesus. Let's start this morning by looking at, at some of what Jesus' rhythms were as he showed us what it means to remain in the Father. Now, we don't know all of what Jesus' rhythms were, but we have some hints and clues from the gospel stories. First, if you have your Bible, take a look at Luke 5, 15 and 16. Luke 5, 15 and 16. Early in Jesus' ministry, we read that crowds of people came to, to hear him and, and to be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One of the ways that Jesus remained in the Father was that despite the, the press and the pressure of ministry, he often took time away. He got away from, from the bustle and from the demands of his life and work to spend time with his father alone. Now notice the place that Jesus went to pray. He didn't go to his bedroom to pray or to his closet. He didn't pray as he walked down the road. Now probably he prayed all of those times, but that's not what Luke is telling us here. No, Luke is telling us that Jesus went to pray in lonely places where no one can find you where you're not surrounded by reminders of everything that you need to do that you haven't done yet, where you're not distracted and tempted, up, tempted to get up and do all those things. 
In today's world, add to that the, the ring of the telephone and the, the text message, the, the lure of the computer screen and the TV. No, Jesus got away from it all. Away from his normal surroundings, away from the interruptions, away from the distractions and the temptations. Jesus went away to lonely places to pray. In other words, Jesus took retreats without his iPhone, without his laptop, without a briefcase full of work to do. Just him and his father so that he could rest, so that he could, he could wrestle with whatever temptations he was facing, with whatever distractions were keeping him from the Father, so that Jesus' soul could grow quiet again, so that he could hear the Father's voice more clearly, so that he could feel the Father's love. Doesn't that sound enticing? If Jesus needed to do this, how much more we do, right? Second, flip back one chapter to Luke 4, verse 16. Luke 4, 16. Luke tells us that early in Jesus' ministry, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Here we learn that it was Jesus' custom to attend the, the local synagogue on the Sabbath day. The synagogue is where God's people at that time gathered. It's where God was worshipped. It's where God's word was read and recited and taught. And, and Jesus made it a custom to join in that corporate gathering of God's people. Third, the Gospel of John makes clear that Jesus regularly went to Jerusalem for the Jewish festivals. In John 2, we see Jesus attending Passover. In John 5, he attends one of the festivals. John doesn't tell us which one there. In John 7, Jesus attends the, the festival of tabernacles. In John 10, he attends the festival of dedication, which today we call Hanukkah. In John 11, we see him attending Passover again. Let's remember that Jesus was a Jew. And the law of Moses in the book of Exodus required all Jews to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year for the feasts of Tabernacles, Pentecost, and Passover. And so it's not at all surprising to find Jesus at these feasts and other non-obligatory feasts as well. These feasts were holidays. They were vacations. They, uh, generally, they coincided with the har harvest times. And so they were times when farmers had brought in their barley or their wheat or their grapes, and, and they could now take a week off to uh, gather with loved ones and have a party. And in the context of all this partying, they'd, they'd give God thanks for all that God had done for them and, and how God had blessed them, kind of like our thanksgivings, but, but even more God-focused, and they lasted a whole week. Fourth, there was the weekly Sabbath. This was a weekly festival, a day off work to rest and celebrate, which God in his law had, had required his people to, to take. And Jesus got in trouble for breaking the Sabbath, didn't he? Mainly because on two or three occasions he healed someone on the Sabbath. But don't let those alleged exceptions obscure the rule. We have every reason to believe that, that as a good law-keeping Jew, like all the other Jews, Jesus ceased from work every Friday night at sundown, lit a candle, as Jews did and still do, and rested on the Sabbath as God his Father had commanded. One day off, every seven, to, to rest, to, to worship, 
to celebrate, to be refreshed and recharged. A weekend. Fifth, Jesus took time to read and to learn and to study and to meditate on God's word. Now here we don't have a specific verse to go on, but we have plenty of evidence. For example, we have Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, right? And, and, and he quotes scripture to combat Satan's temptations. And, and that scripture, the scripture he quotes, he says that people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, do you think Jesus was a hypocrite or do you think that he actually took that verse to heart? You can be sure he wasn't just spouting platitudes, but that Jesus actually lived by every word that came from his father's mouth. Jesus knew a lot of scripture, didn't he? You might remember in, in Luke 3 when he, his parents leave Jerusalem and, and they can't find Jesus and they go back and where do they finally find him? They find him in the temple talking scripture with the, the top theologians and they're amazed at how much he knows. And throughout his ministry, we see that Jesus knew the scriptures. He, he knew them better than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, so much so that when they'd argue with him about scripture, he'd always seem to win. They couldn't refute him. Jesus knew the scripture well enough that, that, um, that he could tell us and teach us what they really meant. He could explain uh, to his disciples how all the scriptures pointed to him. He could tell how prophecies were being filled around him and in him. Now, how did Jesus know all this? Well, in answering this question, I think we're, we're tempted to do what we usually do when Jesus does something amazing, and that's we, we pull the God card. Oh, he was just God. You know, he knew everything. He, he could do anything. And we, we just move on completely not amazed. And I want to stop and question that. You might remember earlier this summer when we looked at who Jesus really is, we talked about how he's fully God and fully human. And I warned us then about an old heresy called Apollinarianism that, and that it's alive and well in the evangelical church today. Apollinarianism is the heresy which says that Jesus is God in a human body. That Jesus is not, in fact, fully human, with a human mind, a human personality, a, a human memory, human limitations. Apollinarianism is, is a heresy that says whenever Jesus does something amazing, oh, he just did that because he's God. And what we have to realize is that over 1,500 years ago, the church considered and soundly rejected this view. The church insisted that Jesus is fully God, yes, and also, Jesus is fully human. Now figure that out. <laughs> but that's what they said. We have to hold these two things in tension. And if Jesus is fully human, then we should look for some human answers too to why Jesus knew God's word so well. We shouldn't just say, oh, Jesus was God. You know, he is the word who wrote the word. That's how he knew the word so well. We should also recognize that, that Jesus, as a little boy who grew up to be a young man, learned God's word in the synagogue. That, that he was taught it by his mother and father. That like other Jewish boys in his day, Jesus memorized large portions of God's word as part of his training. And like other Jewish boys and girls, Jesus probably learned to pray by memorizing and praying the Psalms. 
much like his mother seems to have done. If you, you uh, read Mary's amazing Magnificat in Luke 1, you know, the one that begins, My soul magnifies the Lord. This, this incredible poem is, is full of lines and allusions to various psalms. It's amazing. These, these psalms are what come pouring out of Mary when she prays, even though she's probably only a teenager. And it's no doubt because all her life she's been praying the psalms, pouring them into her heart and her mind. And this is the woman who mothered Jesus. And, and who with Joseph taught him about God and about how to pray using God's word. And as Jesus grew up into a man, he, he must have developed his own habits of reading and studying and memorizing and meditating on God's word. Granted, he was God, yes. And, and the Holy Spirit was powerfully in Jesus, giving him insights well beyond his peers and, and his elders. But there's something we need to realize about the Holy Spirit's empowerment. The Spirit doesn't usually compensate for our laziness. The Spirit doesn't usually compensate for the fact that we haven't put our work in. No, rather the Spirit usually works with and through what we give Him. If, if we walk by the Spirit, the Spirit usually takes the work that we put in and makes something grander of it something more powerful, something more fruitful. I mean, the Spirit can use a lazy person or an ignorant person just as miraculously as he can use a diligent student of God's Word. But you'll almost always find that there's a lot more substance, there's a lot more wisdom coming from the Spirit-filled teacher who has studied compared to the Spirit-filled teacher who has not. And from everything we know about Jesus, he was a man of God's word. All right. So the overall point is that Jesus had rhythms to his life. He, he, um, he not only, uh, what did I want to say here? Jesus engaged in spiritual disciplines. He took time alone. In, in solitude to pray. He uh, participated in regular worship services. He took time off several times a year and once every week for rest and for refreshment and celebration and worship. He spent time in God's word. Not only on the one hand did, did he work hard, did, did he, he minister intensively, but on the other hand, he had the rhythm of pulling away to remain. All of these were, were a part of Jesus' life rhythm. The ways he, he uh, drew away from the press and the activity, the pressure of his life to remain in the Father and thereby when he was engaged to bear fruit. And now Jesus has told us that we also must remain in him if we're going to bear fruit. So how do we remain? If Jesus needed to remain, how do we remain? What spiritual rhythms do we have in our lives? Well, God's people have a name for these rhythms of, of remaining on the one hand and, and bearing fruit on the other hand, and they call it a rule of life, a rule of life. Now, Christians for well over 1,500 years have been using this concept, this phrase, to, to uh, order the rhythms of, of their own lives in order to remain in Jesus and to live a fruitful life. Which makes it kind of curious that 
many of us have probably never heard of this phrase, rule of life, before. Maybe it's because this word rule um, has turned modern Christians off. I mean, it, it sounds like rules, right? It sounds legalistic. But what we need to realize is that this word rule here, which comes from the old Latin word regula, meant um, a straight stick or a staff, a, a measuring stick, or possibly even a trellis on which vines would grow. It, it can be translated into English as a pattern, a, a model, an example. And, and so when you hear the phrase rule of life, think a pattern of life, a, a model of life, a, a rhythm of life. I like the, that image of, of a grape trellis because that's what a, a rule of life does. It, I mean, what happens to a, a, a grapevine if, if um, it doesn't have a trellis to grow on? Well, it just wanders on the ground, getting stepped on, getting um, shaded out by taller plants, getting um, choked by weeds and its fruit getting trampled or rotting on the ground. But, but a grapevine on a trellis can, can thrive. It can, can reach up to the sun. It can have a room to grow. A trellis provides the support that the branches need so that the life of the vine can pulse through them so that they can produce fruit. That's what a rule of life does. And if you don't like that word rule, well then fine, call it a rhythm of life or a pattern of life. Now here's the thing. We all have a rule of life already. We all have a, a pattern to our lives as we work, as we seek to minister to others, as we find time to rest and refresh, as we relate to others, we make time for relationships, as we connect with God. We all have a rule of life, but the thing is, for some of us, our pattern of life doesn't have much rhythm to it. We, we haven't been very intentional about it, and it's not very balanced. Because, because they don't teach you in school how to live a good, balanced, fruitful life. And the pressure you feel from your boss is not leading you in that direction either, chances are. And, and nine times out of ten in our culture, we've, we've got way more busy activity on the one hand than we do have remaining on the other hand. And so the truth may be that, that our pattern, that our rule of life isn't really strong enough to support the life of the vine. It isn't enough to help us really remain. And so even though we're always busy, we're not really always that productive or fruitful. And so what I'm going to encourage us all to do, beginning today and over the next two Sundays, is to do a better job of remaining in Jesus by getting more conscious and more intentional about our rule of life. I want to encourage us to take a look at our life rhythms and to consider whether they're what we want them to be. And to honestly deal with whether they're really going to get us where we want to go spiritually. Would you like to bear fruit? Well, then you've got to remain in the vine. So what's your plan for remaining? That's what I'd like us to look at. Now, one caution here, and that is, we don't ever want to make this a legalistic work. This isn't something that we're going to do to get more spiritual. Remember, our spiritual life, our fruitfulness, completely depends on our remaining in the vine. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. A rule of life is not a substitute or a replacement for remaining in Jesus. 
No, quite to the contrary, it's our support. It's the practical rhythm that we need to be able to remain in Jesus. Listen to Dallas Willard, who's written more helpfully and wisely about spiritual growth than almost anyone I know today. He says in his book, Renovation of the Heart, he says, grace does not rule out method, nor method grace. No, actually, grace thrives on method and method on grace. Remember when Art Robertson spoke to us earlier this summer about grace. He talked about um, God's grace as the, the wonderful forgiveness for our sins, the, the cleansing of our sins. And then he also talked about that grace is more than that, that it's also God's empowerment to help us grow spiritually. And um, that's the kind of grace that Willard's talking about here. And Willard also says, I shared this with you recently, but it bears repeating. In most churches, we're not only saved by grace, we're paralyzed by it. We're afraid to do anything that might be a work. People need to see that action is a receptacle for grace, not a substitute for it. Grace is God acting in our lives to do things we can't do on our own. Sounds like the vine, doesn't it? Grace is not opposed to effort. What grace is opposed to is earning. We can't earn grace. This is sort of like the Jedi um, who had the mighty power of the force at their disposal. But nevertheless, despite having this power outside of themselves, they still had to train hard to learn to take advantage of that force. Now, don't think of Jesus as the force. Jesus is a person. But in a similar sort of way, we rely completely on Jesus and the God's grace God's grace that he offers us through Jesus and on the power and on the life that comes through Jesus that's freely offered to us. But we do need a plan. We, we need a way to remain in that grace, in that vine, in Jesus. And that's what a rule of life helps to provide. So we already looked at some of the components of, of Jesus's rule of life and what helped him to remain. Now the question I want us to begin to think about is, What's your rule of life and mine? Why don't you pull out of your bulletin um, the sheet that looks like this. On one side, it has a, big, a lot of blanks there. The other side has an example that you can look at later. Um, to, to make this simple, I, I've broken down our rule of life into three categories, the same three that we're always talking about, right? The upward category of knowing God of our relationship with God, our spiritual growth, the inward category of growing together, of our relationships with God's people, with the other brothers and sisters who are with us on the journey, who can help to encourage us and um, help us on the way, and the outward category of, of showing Christ, our outward relationship toward the world, at work, with our neighbors, with our friends, etc. A balanced life, a fruitful life, will include healthy relationships in each of these three areas. And in each area, there will be various rhythms. So, for example, in our upward relationship with God, we might have a weekly rhythm of keeping a Sabbath, and we're going to talk more about Sabbath next Sunday. We might have a daily rhythm of taking time to pray and to get into God's Word. 
Maybe we have an annual rhythm of, of vacation time. Of, uh, or maybe retreat time away with God in a solitary place to reflect, draw close to God, think about the coming year, pray about the coming year. In our inward relationships with other people, maybe there's a weekly phone call that we make to a loved one. Or maybe a weekly coffee date with a, a friend or involvement with a, with a small group or with a prayer partner. Or maybe there's a daily rhythm, rhythm of, of sharing dinner with family. In our outward relationships, maybe uh, we have a goal to be more focused at work, to, to do what we're supposed to be doing at work instead of all those things we get distracted doing. Maybe we have um, an annual rhythm of participating on a mission trip. Or, or maybe there's a ministry we participate in or we give financially to and pray for. Or a maybe regular time that we spend with those in our neighborhood that we sense that Jesus is leading us to himself. Everybody's rule of life is different. Some of us like and need a lot of detail and structure. Others of us need to keep things really simple. Um, we're each called to different things. We are energized by different things. May, maybe for some of us, we're not sure yet what works for us, uh, what helps us to remain, and so we just need to experiment with some different things. So where are you at? You have a rule of life already, but maybe you haven't been that conscious or intentional about what it is. So here's the challenge for this morning. Will you embrace this process over the next few weeks of working on your rule of life? And will you not do it alone, but will you rather do it with a few others? Maybe you're in a small group with some others at CBC and you can take time as a group over the next few weeks to discuss and help and share ideas with one another. Or, or maybe you're not in a small group, but maybe you can find a friend or two to bounce things off of, to talk and pray through this with. The first step is to um, jot down the things that you're already doing, because you're already doing things. You already have a rule of life. But then you may want to prayerfully evaluate those things. Maybe there's some things you need to drop. Maybe there's some ways that you want to improve or some things that you want to add. Um, I'd encourage you also to look at the handout that um, I handed out two Sundays ago in the bulletin of the 10 spiritual growth practices. Um, there's some handouts in the foyer if you don't have yours anymore. Um, we're going to be focusing on these 10 practices as a church for the foreseeable future, and they're all designed to, to help you grow spiritually, to, to be the raw material of a rule of life, to, to help you abide and, and to bear fruit. And so consider including some of those in your rule. At 11.15 today, the regular Bible study on Romans is going to meet in room one upstairs. And um, in place of the discussion group in the lounge, we're going to do a workshop on how to develop a rule of life um, to take you through some steps of more practically how to develop your rule. Maybe it's a place where you could also find another person to connect with this. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you, because of your love for us, came all the way down to show us how to live a well-lived life, a beautiful life, a wholesome and healthy and good life. Thank you that you came to bear the fruit that we had failed time and again to bear. 
Thank you that you took away the penalty for our sin, for our failure, that you washed us clean, that you dressed us in your righteousness, you reconciled us to your Father, and then you actually invited us to draw close, to remain in you. We admit that we are pulled so many different directions by this culture. We have obligations, we have things that we think are obligations, we have things we've gotten into that we don't know how we got into and we wish we could figure out how to get out of. And so this process of thinking about our lives, of thinking of a rule of life, um, can raise a whole bunch of emotions in us. But I pray that um, over these next weeks, you would speak to us softly and persistently, that you would call us to a life of fruitfulness, that you would call us to yourself, and that you'd show us the way, step by step, to walk with you, to be fruitful. In Jesus' name, amen.